This is round two for them. They, they stayed for the second service just for your sake. So we appreciate it. And we want to thank Jim Miller, especially for filling in for Steve today. Steve's in California at a music clinic. Jim is uh, Jim's a choral conductor and a big part of our, our music ministry. And I don't know how he sings and keeps his hands down to his side. But when he uh, directs, he does a great job. We're glad. Steve's in California. Uh, Todd's in Egypt. I think they wanted to get as far away from each other as they could. And I hope that's not the spiritual letdown that uh, Craig was talking about. I'm just kidding, of course. Um, I, that's, that's something that has always intrigued me. What happens um, this, the Sunday after Easter? How sort of the air goes out of the balloon? And it, should be, it should be the greatest time for us. We've just celebrated the risen Lord. But for some reason, there is sort of that, that backing off. I did some research into this. And I found out that there are some churches that have a, a tradition of the Sunday after Easter, and they call it Holy Humor Sunday. And the premise behind it is that, um, that we celebrate the great joke that was played on Satan. One of my favorite writers says it this way. He says, Calvary is judo. Satan's conclusion was God's premise. So um, we celebrate and we laugh about the great twist that, uh, that Satan experienced. Well, I think that's a great tradition. In fact, I've, I've heard that in some churches they use the whole Sunday morning uh, on the day after Easter just to tell jokes. And I heard, I read of a, a, a church where the choir wears bathrobes on uh, that Sunday. And even of a church where the pastor's dressed as the Blues Brothers um, to, for the great Holy Humor Day. Well, I don't think we're going to go that far, but um, I do have a little treat for you. I asked the, the absolute queen of humor at West Bowles Church, my favorite Martian, Gina Shrek, to come and just give us a little bit of laughter this morning. So, would you welcome her as she comes up? It's always good to be the church clown. <laughs> holy Humor Week. I, I thought there was holy humor every day. So, I was kind of surprised, and I read the same thing about pastors who would play practical jokes on their... Uh, parishioners that would come in, so you might want to check your seats if there are whoopee cushions under the seats and things. And then there was something about drenching people with water. That water would come down and drench the congregation. So be prepared. But uh, uh, I, I always think there's something funny in everything. And, and I really believe that God created us to laugh. And I tend to find humor everywhere and in any situation. And we were truly, if you, if you look at babies, babies laugh. We had to unlearn laughter and joy because children are very joyful and they're full of laughter. And so if you think about it, what, what made us stop laughing? What got us so serious? I mean, look around, people. <laughs> Who's smiling today? Yeah. I mean, if you look around, I mean, I say sometimes we need to learn how to laugh again. And really, there's two stages. You, you smile. And then if you just look at someone and raise your eyebrows. Do that right now. Look, raise your eyebrows. Do you see? They look happy, don't they? Yeah. If you're happy and you know it, tell your face. So, as Christians, we should be laughing more and feel the joy and have more fun. And I think growing up, we learn to be serious and we learn to be stressed. And I grew up hearing things like, this is not a... Laughing matter. Yeah, I see you guys heard the same thing. This is not a laughing matter. And everything to you is a... Joke. Yeah. And so, you know, and we see someone fall. What do we want to do? We laugh and see we're sick, but we do that. We laugh. (laughs) 
And, yeah, my daughter's already laughing because I think I just create opportunities for my family to laugh. And just so for the rest of their life they'll be able to laugh about things. And we went skiing the last couple of days. And um, <laughs> Taylor's already laughing, crying, tears. But we went skiing, and we went to Breckenridge. And on skis, when you ski in the springtime, you know the bottom of the hill's kind of slushy, and then there's just dry pavement. And so... At the end of the day, we were going to this new bridge that takes you over to a gondola that takes you back to your car. And so my family was at the bottom. They're gathered, taking off their skis and snowboard. And I'm still coming down the hill, flying down the hill. And I thought, I am going to pass them, thinking my skis still had a little bit of ice on them. And I thought, I'm going to fly over the bridge and go, bye. And as I'm... Yeah, see, some of you know what happened. So I'm coming down the hill fast, and I see Taylor's face look at me, and Bailey, they're staring at me like, what, what is she doing? She's not even slowing down. I come, to, I come down the hill and to the bridge, thinking I'm going to go over the bridge past them. And I go, bye, and right as I said bye, I hit dry pavement, and I went, boom, and flew and fell. And uh, first thing Bailey says is, pride cometh before fall. And... Um, <laughs> So we were laughing, saying, I'll do anything to instill scripture into these children. And uh, pride cometh before fall. We were talking about that the rest of the way home and just crying, laughing. But there's always something to laugh at if we look. And I tell people, it's not important to be funny. It's more important to see funny. And God creates opportunities for us to see funny every day and experience the joy that he created for us. And I will I'll look at it and say, it's our, really, it's our God given uh, that he gives us this commission to go out. I say a spiritual gift. If spiritual gift was humor, that, that's, I was hoping that that was a spiritual gift, but it's not. But he tells us to go out and spread that joy to others. And there are times that we feel the stress and the burden of life and we need to lighten up. And one time, this was not too long ago, I was in Target, and I was getting chocolate. I had to buy a bunch of candy for a class that I was teaching, and I filled up the cart with chocolate. And I'm pushing the cart, and how can you feel bad, first of all, in Target? There's just something. I don't know. Does anyone else feel that? At the red dot, you walk in, it's like, ah. Oh. Like it's something hypnotic. And, and then I had chocolate in my cart, so how can you feel bad? And so I decided I'm going to pick the longest line so I can stand there and just be a people watcher. Sometimes we look for the short line, and we really need to look for the long line and enjoy looking at people. And so I'm standing in line, feeling great, not in a hurry, but the woman in front of me was not feeling so great. So I'm standing with my cart filled with chocolate. Oh. There was one other item in my cart. Um, I travel a lot, and I, I ran out of toothpaste. And so I had a little tiny tube of toothpaste and then bags of candy, like 12 big bags of candy. So that by itself was funny. But I'm, I'm standing in line and just feeling great. And the woman in front of me starts going, oh, and looking at her watch. And she kept looking at her watch and stomping her foot. And I thought, how funny. She reminds me of a horse. <laughs> you know, she was doing this. <laughs> and nasty people want to kind of bring you into their vortex of nastiness. And so she kept stomping her foot. <clears throat> and then she would look around. I had a cart of chocolate between us, so I felt safe. And, and she, I'm standing there, and she stomps her foot again and looks at me and says, Don't you hate it when they don't staff well here? What do you say when you're feeling great? I, I just went, Bummer. <laughs> and I said, Do you want some chocolate? Thinking that would make her feel better. 
It didn't. And she got up to the counter, and there was a young woman at the counter, probably 16, 17 years old, and the horse lady gets up there and starts slamming all of her merchandise onto the counter and yelling at this poor girl at the counter, what's wrong with you people? Don't you know you should staff more? And I'm, I'm now feeling obligated to lighten the mood. <laughs> So the horse lady, bag, they bag up all her stuff and they get her out the door. And the, the young woman was red and ready to cry. So I thought, here's my chance to spread some holy humor. And so I put the candy on the conveyor belt. And that's all I had was candy and toothpaste. So I put the candy and I leaned into her and I said, I had a little sweet tooth. <laughs> she didn't laugh. She didn't think that was funny. <laughs> So then I thought, okay, this takes, you know, calls for serious measures. So I piled the bags into a mountain and took the little tube of toothpaste, the little box, and I put it on top and I said, thought I'd better brush after this. <laughs> she didn't laugh at that either. So she, <laughs> she was having one of those days. So I just stopped and I said, are you having one of those days? And she said, tell me about it. <laughs> this is an opportunity to help people lighten up. We can get sucked in at the moment or we can lighten up and laugh at things. And I said, don't you wish there was an invention, a headband with a little toilet handle on it, that when nasty people yell at you, you can just whoosh, flush it away. <laughs> I know, it's kind of gross. <laughs> it gives you fresh water for the next person to dump on you. Okay, I probably shouldn't say that from the pulpit. I probably shouldn't say that from here. Scratch that. Dave's going, never let her up there again. Um, but all of a sudden, she laughed. And I said, you need a piece of chocolate. We need to have a better day. And I gave her a piece of chocolate, and we both laughed. And I'm here to tell you, we were born laughing. We were born with that joy. And it's the day after Easter, the week after Easter, the year after Easter. It doesn't matter what day it is. We should have holy humor all year. So I'm going to leave you with a little clip that I want to remind you, and it's actually a part of a commercial, so some of you will recognize it, to laugh. You were born to laugh, and there's great benefits. Laughter can add eight years to your life. Right. Let's go home. You're not going to remember anything I say anyway. After that, thank you, Gina. Nobody can make you laugh like that. I want you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 21, the last chapter of John's Gospel. I think if I could characterize um, what I'd like to say to you this morning, it would be in um, an old um, chorus that I learned when I was a kid called, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. No turning back, really, is, is um, what I want to talk to you about this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to open our eyes, to behold wonderful things from your law, and help us, Lord, to um, make your word a part of every part of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter breaks down, in my judgment, into three scenes, so I'm going to break it down that way this morning. I'm going to ask you to just follow along with me as I read uh, from John 21, the first three verses. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas, who was also called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The phrase that's the key to this um, um, little scene this morning is Peter saying, I'm going out to fish. It's really the key to understanding the disposition of the disciples at this point in their lives. We would probably look at this and say, well, Peter's saying, you know, it's just time for a little recreation. It's time for us guys to just get together and go to the lake, kick back a little bit, drown some worms, and we're just going to fish. And that's probably the way we would look at this passage, but really that's not exactly what Peter was saying. Um, I'm, uh, I found these words from, or this phrase, in a translation by a guy named Kenneth West, and uh, West says that he takes the, the, the literal Greek and transliterates it exactly into English, and he doesn't care about the awkwardness of the phrasing. He just wants to make sure that the words are exactly translated. This is how he translates that phrase that Peter said, I'm going out to fish. I'm going off, breaking my former connections, and I'm going to my former fishing business. It sounds to me like what Peter's saying is, I've had enough. I need something familiar and normal in my life. These past days have just been too much. I've had to consider how I'm going to make a living. The others, probably all the disciples who were fishermen by trade, agreed with Peter. They said, we're coming with you. The disciples, it seems to me as I look at this, were confused and disappointed, maybe frustrated. What do we do now? We'll have to step back into the reality of our lives before we met Jesus. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go fishing. Now, why would they feel this way? These guys had seen a risen Jesus. All their shattered hopes had been restored. But I want you to take a look at really what, um, at, at the appearances of Jesus after he had been raised from the grave. There are appearances, uh, um, first of all, the first appearance we have is in Matthew 28, and it's Jesus appearing to the women at the, at the tomb. And then in John 20, we see Mary Magdalene meets Jesus. And then um, in Luke chapter 24, we see two guys that are on the road to Emmaus and they have a conversation with Jesus. And as that unfolds, they realize that they're talking to Jesus. They mention that um, there was another appearance of Jesus. Here's what they say in, in Luke chapter uh, 24 and verse 33. It says they rose up that very hour after they had recognized Jesus and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told all about the things that had happened on the road and, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This, I, I had to have this pointed out to me um, through a, a book that there was a, a time when Jesus and Peter met together. Now, how did, these, how did these two guys know that? It had to be that Jesus told them that he had met with Peter. So we have the women at the tomb, we have Mary Magdalene, we have Peter, and later the two on the road. And then finally, um, on the same evening, we see Jesus appear to the gathered disciples. They're in a, a locked room and he just appears. And what we note about that is that Thomas is not with them. Um, that was the first Sunday. That was Easter. That's what we celebrated last week. Now, a week goes by, a whole week goes by, and there's another appearance of Jesus to the disciples. They're in a, in, a, in a locked room again, and they're gathered together, and this time Thomas is with them, and Jesus appears to them, and that, we're told about that in John chapter 20. That's it. On Easter, 
He had these appearances with different people, and he met once with his chosen group of men, his disciples, in the evening. It seemed like it was pretty brief. A week later, he meets him again in a locked room, and that's a pretty brief uh, encounter as well. And he shows Thomas, he says, come and touch my, my hands and put your hand in my side, and you stop, stop not believing, stop doubting. That's it. That's all of the appearances of Jesus that the disciples have seen. These were men who were used to spending every day with Jesus. They watched him. They learned from him. They recognized him as their rabbi and eventually came to understand and believe in him as the Messiah. And now, though they know he is alive, they only get little glimpses of Jesus. His visits are short and far between. And for all we know, this third visit of Jesus that we're going to look at this morning could have taken another week or maybe two weeks or three weeks. Maybe a month had gone by and the disciples had not seen Jesus. Is it hard to believe that they would have been discouraged? That they would have thought, maybe it's time to give up on Jesus. Maybe it's time to go back to life as we know it. Now let's look at the next scene. It starts in verse 4. Early in the morning, the disciples had been out fishing all night. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we have these discouraged men returning back to their old profession. And now they encounter Jesus again on the shore. How did they know it was Jesus? I mean, how did John know that it was Jesus? It was a hundred yards away. You know, we, um, we built this building so that the, the, uh, the place where you speak, the pulpit, would be no more than a hundred feet away from the furthest point. That's so we can see who's sleeping on the back row. And these guys were a hundred yards away. So if you translate that, that's three times. That's probably over in the foyer of the youth building. How did John, he was younger than the rest of them, but how did he know, looking across, that this was Jesus? Well, let, me, um, let me take you back to Luke chapter 5 and the first encounter that John had with Jesus and see the similarities. This is in Luke 5. So it was as the multitudes pressed about him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee again. And he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. 
When Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Peter sees this scene repeating itself. He's out, or not Peter, but John sees this, this scene repeating. He's out on the lake all night. They fish. They catch nothing. And from the shore, Jesus calls and says, put down on the other side, on the right side of the boat, and then they catch fish. And he remembers. That's how he first met Jesus. He was on a boat. And Jesus said, put down your nets on the other side, and you'll catch fish. And they caught fish. And then Jesus says to them, I want you to follow me. And no longer will you catch fish, but you'll catch men. This was a quiet breakfast, it seems. Don't you think it was uh, likely that the disciples were a bit ashamed? They'd bought into Peter's attitude. They'd all taken that approach. We can't count on Jesus. We can't count on Jesus anymore. We'll have to fend for ourselves now. Is there any doubt that Jesus knew what was in their minds and in their hearts? And yet, he does not rebuke them or scold them. Maybe not just at this moment. Maybe he does it in a gentle and a subtle way. Let's go to the third scene from this chapter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, Peter. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Jesus asked Peter a tough question. It was made even tougher by the fact that it was a public question. He asked him in front of the other men. He said, do you love me more than these? What did he mean? He could have meant, do you love me more than you love these other men? That was an easy one for Peter. Peter loved his fellow disciples, but he loved Jesus. He was committed to Jesus. It could have meant, do you love me more than these fishing implements? Now, that might have been a, a tough answer for Peter. Because Peter had said, I'm going back fishing. I'm going back to my old life. And Jesus said, you love me more than this? Or maybe it meant, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because Peter had made that profession. He had said, if everybody else deserts you, if everybody else is gone, still, I will follow you. Jesus doesn't clarify the question. And Peter doesn't follow it up. He doesn't ask. But if the question is obscure... Peter's answer is even more confusing. Jesus' question to Peter was this. We have it in in the NIV is just, do you love me? But really he was asking, do you love me, Peter, with reasoning, intentional, spiritual devotion as one loves the Father? 
Peter's response to that question is, Lord, yes, you know that I love you, that I have a deep, instinctive, personal affection for you as for a close friend. Let's look at that again. Jesus' question is, do you love me with reasoning, intentional, spiritual devotion as one loves the Father? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I have an emotional connection to you. Jesus' question was about Peter's will, and Peter's answer was about his emotions. Why the difference? There's no doubt that we're seeing a different Peter in this scene. The bold, brash leader of the pack has become subdued and quiet in his spirit, humbled, no doubt, by his failure, by his denial of Jesus. He understood the question that Jesus asked, but he knew better than to misrepresent his own abilities and his own character. So without addressing the discrepancy, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my lambs. Peter, I have work for you to do, and that's how you'll express your love. The same scenario repeats itself. Jesus asks a question, and Peter answers with humility, confessing a different love than Jesus asked him. And again, Jesus says, I have work for you to do, Peter. Shepherd my sheep. And finally, Jesus asks the question in the same manner that Peter has been answering. He says, I I have an emotional connection to you. He says, Peter, do you love me with a deep, instinctive, personal affection for me as for a close friend? And Peter's grieved by the questions and he confesses his love for Jesus a third time. And a third time, Jesus says to Peter, I have work for you to do. Feed my sheep. Many have seen in this episode the reinstatement of Peter as an apostle of Jesus. We all know that Peter denied Jesus three times. And there are some glaring similarities between this account and that denial. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter three times denied the Lord. The questioning took place in the morning and that Jesus, when Jesus asked these questions and Peter recognized his failure, his denials on the morning after he did them, when the cock crowed. I think there's um, reason to see more here than just the reinstatement of Peter. In the first place, this is not the first encounter between Jesus and Peter. Remember, there was a private meeting. What possible topic of conversation would Jesus and Peter have to talk about if not the denial of of Peter and Jesus' forgiveness? And if there was need for a public reinstatement, why on the lecture with only six other disciples? It seems likely to me that Jesus and Peter had already settled the issue. Peter's denial did not surprise Jesus, even though it surprised Peter. And I can't imagine that Jesus would not dispose of Peter's failure and his feelings of guilt as quickly as possible. What is the scene about then? There's a clue in what follows the conversation. Jesus says to Peter, your life will be go in a very different direction. In the end, you will not enjoy the freedom and independence of your youth. Someone else will control your moves. Jesus is talking to Peter about the way he's going to die. And he says, Peter, you used to be free. You could do whatever you wanted. You went where you wanted. You wore what you wanted. You did what you wanted. And at the end of your life, it's going to be different. And you'll stretch out your hands and somebody else will lead you. And he was talking about the way that Peter would die. Peter died crucified. But because he was too too humble to be crucified like Jesus, he asked to be crucified upside down. Jesus says, after he says that to Peter, follow me. The text implies that he was walking away from the group. But did he mean more than just come take a walk with me, Peter? 
The answer comes in the exchange that follows. Peter, ever the busybody, looks around and sees that John is following them. And he asks Jesus, what about him? You know, he's just heard his own fate. He wonders if something better is, is in, in store for John than is in store for him. Jesus' answer is sharp and clear. He says, it's none of your business, Peter, what happens to him. I have said to you, you follow me. Follow me, Peter. Continue to be my disciple, to trust me, to listen to me, to go where I send you and to do what I command you to do. Jesus is saying to Peter, I believe, get in the game. Stop worrying about your welfare. Stop worrying about your status or that of anyone else. I want you to follow me. Jesus has invested far too much in Peter to give up on him. In telling Peter to follow him, Jesus is saying to him, Peter, I believe in you. I haven't called you to a life of ease and comfort, but I've called you to a life that counts. Follow me. There are, of course, many lessons to be taken from this chapter. I'm going to limit myself to one for each of the scenes that we've looked at this morning. I want you to think about the first scene. When the discouraged fishermen decided to go back to what they knew best. How many times have we found ourselves in the same position as the disciples? Frustrated over the Lord's timing. Wondering if he knows or cares about our circumstances. How often have we decided that we cannot wait for him and we must take matters into our own hands? The formula for disaster in our lives is to take matters into our own hands and to not trust Jesus. Like the disciples, we should know better. Jesus told them and us that he will never leave us or forsake us. He promised to be with us to the end of time. He taught us that he will provide our needs if we seek first his kingdom. Waiting on God is never wasted time. In the second scene, we see that John recognized Jesus because he had a good memory. He had a good memory of his relationship with Jesus and how he met the master and what Jesus had done for him. It's vitally important for you and for me that we have good memories pertaining to Jesus. We need to recall how he has led us, what he has taught us, and how he has come through on his promises in our lives. That's the best antidote to giving up. In the third scene, and pardon me if I make one lesson out of two, we see that Jesus has worked to do for those who claim to love him and that the highest calling for anyone is to follow Jesus. We may not have the same job as Peter, but we are all called to work. Maybe the lambs we feed are the children in our church who need teachers or the children in our homes who need a shepherd. Maybe the work we've been given seems small, but let me remind you, nothing done for Jesus is small. Jesus believed in and invested in Peter, and he believes in and has invested in you and me. He expects a return on his investment, a life of grateful service. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would not walk away from here just having heard your words, not just having looked at ourselves in a mirror and then forgetting, but that we will put it to practice in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you will guide us through this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be dismissed. We want to remind you that uh, if you would like to pray with someone, there's some folks up at the front here who would love to do that, take some time with you. In other words, have a great day.